What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. As a librarian, I often look to book awards to help me find interesting things to read. One award I always pay attention to is the National Book Award for Young People's Literature. This award is given each year by the National Book Foundation. Judges for this award are published writers who are doing great work in the genre that they judge. This makes this award unique because it is an award that is given by an author's peers. Lots of excellent books have won this award. Authors who have been honored include some of my favorites, like Katherine Patterson, Natalie Babbitt, Ursula Le Guin, and Lloyd Alexander. With so many favorites receiving the award, it's hard to pick just one. But I will say that the 2005 winner, The Penderwicks, A Summer Tale of Four Sisters, Two Rabbits, and a Very Interesting Boy, remains one of my most recommended books for children and families. The story of the Penderwick family begins in this beautifully told account of the family's summer vacation. Filled with wonderful characters, the story focuses on the complex interpersonal relationships of families, which is something that will be familiar to all children. This is one of the best books about sisters that I know. It reminds me a lot of Louisa May Alcott's Little Women and the books that I loved to read as a girl, like the stories of Beverly Cleary and Lois Lowry. This book and its sequels all have a lovely old-fashioned flair with plots that are filled with lots of twists and tons of humor. As the books progress, the sisters begin to grow up, but their connection to each other and their family stays strong. Readers of all ages will enjoy these beautiful stories. They will make wonderful family read-alouds, as each of the charming characters will allow readers of varying ages to find someone to connect to. I love well-crafted stories, and there is little doubt that the 2005 National Book Award Committee found just such a book in the Penderwicks. This is such a charming book. I hope you check it out on this recommendation from here at Rachel's World. The world of literacy meets the world of music, today on Worlds Awaiting. How do we help children learn about music and appreciate it? Today, Rachel visits with music educator Jennifer Purdy. Naturally, the child's home environment is going to be crucial, and it's not just about formal lessons either. Jennifer Purdy has been a music educator for over 30 years and believes she's got the happiest job in the world. She currently teaches music at Highland Park Elementary in Salt Lake City, Utah, and also works with the BYU Arts Partnership Program. For nearly a decade, Jennifer Purdy has also been a composer consultant for Utah Opera Company and writes original operas with elementary school children. Here's Rachel and Jennifer. We're in studio with Jennifer today. Welcome, Jennifer. Thanks, Rachel. I'm so glad to be here. I am glad to have you here because we get to talk about one of my favorite topics, learning and teaching music. I, I think that this is, to me, probably one of the quintessential things of childhood is is learning about music. And everybody thinks that there's this context that we, we need to learn music as children. And I couldn't agree more. So how do we make that happen? How do we help children learn about music? How do we teach music to children? Um, at a very young age. So let's start maybe just at a kind of basic level. How do we teach children to appreciate music? 
Well, I think the parents have to appreciate it and have it in their home. I know because I love music and our family iTunes library literally has thousands of songs and is probably the most eclectic music collection you've ever seen in your life. But we always had music playing. I just, I turn on music as soon as I walk in my door. I just like to have music going and I like different styles. And it's interesting because I at one time worked as just a studio piano teacher. So I had students and things and I taught my own children piano and Sadly, none of them have turned out to be pianists, but they're all musicians, and they've all ended up coming back to that and playing a variety of instruments and really liking instruments um, and music and composing, and they all play in some form or another. And so I keep thinking they probably got an appreciation you know, through the years of all these different things that they were exposed to simply because my husband and I really like listening to music and just having different kinds of music. I think that's a really good fundamental start to just just have music as a part of your life, mm-hmm. whether it's in the background or a more formal part of it. That really makes us make those connections. So a good place to start. But let's move the next step. Maybe how could we do that in a more formalized way? Are there ways that we can help children to listen to music that um, makes it more of a focus on the music itself? There are ways. I know um, as I teach uh, in school, so I teach grades K through 6, I, for example, we've been talking and listening and doing a lot of activities about Vivaldi's um, violin concerto and specifically spring from the four seasons simply because it is spring. So we've been doing this for weeks. We started it in March when it was the vernal equinox because that's when spring begins And we learned all about Vivaldi and his life and what was happening in the world at that time and what instruments he had available and why he chose the instruments he did for that. And what does a concerto mean? What does a solo mean? What does a violin sound like versus a viola or a cello or a harpsichord? Learn to identify those. And then we talked a lot about the pattern of what that first movement sounded like what to listen for, the themes that would reoccur. And even before that, we said, what does spring sound like to you? What's your idea of spring? And many of the children would say, it's birds, it's, you know, it's the things that Vivaldi put, well, this is what he thought too. And this is how he interpreted his sounds of what he thought springs sounded like by using um, violin, viola, and cello. And just just yesterday, I had a group of second graders where we had experienced Vivaldi. We've been doing this for weeks and talking about it and experiencing it all these different ways. And we finally decided just to listen to it. I gave them op- an opportunity just to listen and not even listening for something specific. But I told them to find a comfortable place in the room, which for many of them meant laying on the floor. I turned out the lights and said, we're not going to move. We're not going to talk. Just let the music surround you and just listen and appreciate it. And listen for some of the things that we talked about. Listen for which instrument is playing. Listen for the theme that you hear. And they were already so familiar with the form and the pattern that they knew what to expect and what to come next. And we finished that and they were extremely attentive as they were listening. 
and still. We return to our chairs, and because it's the end of the school year, one of the things that I do is ask them for some of their favorite music songs or activities that we've done through the year, and we'll do those our last few music times of the school year. And every single class said that they wanted to do that activity again, to just quietly sit and listen um, to Vivaldi. I love that. I think that that's a great thing to do. This this sense of as families, we can have this kind of unstructured experience with music, but then there's also this sense of structured experience. I know that you too also do structured experience not only with just experience music, but also with creating music. So, how might we help students and children maybe take that next step and to making their own music? So, hopefully, through the schools, we'll be seeing more and more music education, as well as other arts education, too. And personally, I work with Utah Opera Company. It's a local opera company. And there's there are a few here in Utah that have education outreach programs where they have composer consultants that will come into classrooms and help children create and write and perform their own operas. And I've done that for several years. And it's actually one of the most rewarding things that I do. I love to see their faces when they hear their own songs for the first time. And um, when I've gone back and put them a musical arrangement to them and and play them, you know, the full arrangement with them and and everybody sings them because they've been so involved, that is so rewarding. And their faces just light up and they're so proud because they really did write that song. They know they did, and they know the work that went into it. And I really try hard as part of my job um, facilitating that to make sure that the songs that are performed really reflect the children's work. I'm not just taking a few of their ideas and then making it really, okay, but we're really going to do it this way. No, I, I really try and make it reflect authentically what they've created themselves. And it's so fun. I think that's a wonderful way to look at it because this reality is that the kids really naturally have this affinity to this kind of creation in a fundamental way. And and I think a great role for parents particularly is to be an advocate, particularly as you're saying these new standards and this new focus that music is a core kind of thing that parents just need to be strong advocates in their schools and in their communities for that to be a part of what they are. And then searching out some of these kinds of programs like you're mentioning. I'm sure there's other communities around the country that have these kinds of programs and seeking that out is is a great first step. I know for a lot of parents, a first step getting their kids involved in music is, you know, more traditional kind of music lessons where, you know, we start piano lessons or we start taking an instrument. So what kinds of tips might you have along those lines for parents if they want to to start the the lesson route? (laughs) I think it's a great, I think it's great. I completely encourage that. I think it's so good for children. First of all, because the requirement to practice regularly is a really great form of a, a chore or a job or work, um, maybe some children don't see it as that. I hope they don't always see it. <laughs> Practicing as a chore, I hope it's it's enjoyable, but it is something that they have complete control over their decision whether how to be successful and how much effort, and that their effort completely results in in success in that. I think it's a great thing. Plus, as as we've talked and shown how much. 
um, music aids in brain development and literacy and all of these other things that are the byproducts of music education in whatever form it takes. Yesterday, I had a group, a Brazilian drumming and movement group come to my school, and they're offering a summer camp for children, teaching them drumming and moving and as well as the Brazilian culture and language. What a great, what a great connection and what a great musical experience to have that may be a little bit out of the ordinary. So thinking of and finding those experiences in your own community could be a great first step, even if it's not formal music education lessons. And I think that really is true. There's so many opportunities. If we just open our eyes a little bit and look around, we can find those in programs and schools that can that can help make that kind of experimentation more open and possible. It does. It makes it possible. It makes it safe and it makes it it makes it enjoyable. And like I said, it, it might be something that really spurs a child to something that they didn't know that they liked. Um, I've had some of my students that have gone on to be performers and vocalists, and they said, I wouldn't have done that except that I had this experience in elementary school, and I didn't even know that I liked it, and I wouldn't have ever done it if I hadn't tried it or hadn't overcome my fears to try it the first time. And other children might try it and say, yeah, that wasn't for me. But you can say, I've got this great memory and I've got this this experience that I did this thing. And it's all part of your package of experiencing life. Yeah. And I think that that is a great point to end on this fact that it's about experiencing life. It's not necessarily about becoming a performer or a professional musician. It's about having this important aspect of your own expression and your own ability to to interact with the world. And, and whether you end up on you know a concert stage as a concert pianist or whether you just have fun playing you know at at your local uh, events or even just in your own home, it's very worth it. It absolutely is. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Appreciate that. That was Rachel Wadham with music educator Jennifer Purdy talking about how to help your children learn about and appreciate music. You're listening to Worlds Awaiting. Next, if you're already a big-time reader, you've probably already experienced it. But quite possibly, you never knew it had a name. It's called bibliotherapy. Rachel talks to associate professor Melissa Heath and graduate student Katie Smith, both in BYU's Department of Psychology, about using books and literature as a way to pursue emotional healing and growth. Here's Rachel with Melissa and Katie. We are here with Katie and Melissa today, and we are going to discuss bibliotherapy. So that's a big word. And I actually had someone today say, that's a thing. And I said, yeah, it is a thing. So Katie, tell us a little bit about what bibliotherapy is. Yes. And it's not as complicated as it sounds. Um, It's really using books and literature as a way to find emotional healing and growth. And so it can be used across ages, you know, from little children to teenagers and even to adults. Um, You know, discovering, you know, problems that are in our lives or in another person's lives, and then using books as a way to um, really like mediate uh, those feelings that we're having and work through a process. Um, And so some researchers 
have kind of developed like a four-stage process in order to do that. And so the first part of that is to identify what the problem actually is. And then the second part is probably the hardest part, and that's finding a book that's going to address that problem. Um, So it's if you're looking for a book for yourself or for someone else, a book that we can relate to the character and relate to the problem, and a book that's maybe not going to um, instill like too much hope of, you know, unrealistic expectations, but that it's really realistic and applicable to the situation. Um, And then the third part is reading the book. And then the last part is, you know, a follow up, a discussion of, you know, how is this book applicable to your life? um, And how can you use what you learned here to solve the current problem that you're facing? So it's not, you know, anything too extreme, but it's really using books as a way to to find emotional healing. That's a perfect way to describe it. And I, I think a lot of us just naturally do this. We mm-hmm. turn to literature, we turn to books and these types of things. And as adults, we often do this. But I think the trickiest part, you're right, is finding the right book. So mm-hmm. Melissa, talk to us a little bit about what are the challenges there and, and how can we better find books that will match these really important needs? I am always on the look for a good book. And I find that I talk with people a lot, librarians, uh, children's librarians especially, are very knowledgeable about the books that are out there. I try to find a good book, but even a good book sometimes doesn't just exactly fit. So it's like you have to search and find. And when I find one, it's like, wow, I've found a nugget of gold. Um, One of the things I think about the word bibliotherapy, the word therapy makes people think it has to be clinical, like for a psychologist or a psychiatrist, when in fact, uh, bibliotherapy has two different kind of roads that it takes. One is a very developmental approach. approach where you're looking at just children's regular developmental needs where all children can benefit uh, from reading a good book that addresses something that they're facing a common challenge. And then the clinical bibliotherapy is where it is actually used with uh, psychiatrists, psychologists, uh, counselors. They're finding some really difficult topics that might be hard for a teacher to address in the classroom, such as sexual abuse or suicide might be hard for a teacher just to talk about with the whole class. So I try to find a book that matches the developmental need of the child. I try to find a book that it is about the topic that is the problem at the time, and it's a book that might match that child. Sometimes also using animal books. If the child doesn't want to talk about their own issue, using animals is a more, it displaces the problem from them to outside of themselves, and it, it still can be very healthy to use those. Um, I also like to look at what good books are really good, what children's librarians think are really good books, because I think you teach a child with beautiful pictures, with beautiful words, and the way things are expressed. I think those things are really important. Those are some really great suggestions. Thank you. So picking books is a challenge, but what are some of the other challenges we face as we kind of use books to address these emotional needs? Um, I think, you know, just the child, you know, understanding the book in general. And that's why I think the follow up and the discussion at the end is so important because you can read a book with a child, but they may have gotten something completely different out of it than you had originally expected. And so really having that discussion with the child afterwards and making sure, you know, you get on the same page, whether they're getting on your page or you're getting on their page, which I think is probably, you know, the better place to go um, so that you can really like 
work through like, you know, why did your mind go there? Why did you think that way? Because that might be the way to addressing their problem and then helping them really work through it that way. So really, you know, helping them understand the book um, could also be a problem that you might face. Yeah, that's really important. And I, you know, I think there is so much good here. I mean, books really connect this way. But I think there also can be some harm and some negatives if we take this a little bit too far. I know when I was a young girl, my father passed away um, and everybody was giving me books with dads dying in them. And I'm just like, (laughs) I don't want a book about another dad that dies. What I wanted was, you know, a fluffy adventure story, right? I, I I wanted to be able to see that life went on. I didn't want to face death. And so I think there are some of those kinds of situations where we have to be really careful in addressing those needs um, with the children. So how how can we go about that? How can we kind of balance this the benefits as well as maybe some of the some of the negatives that might go on with this kind of approach? Right. I think the one thing too, sometimes you might think, well let's just read this book with this child. But you need to have a good relationship with the child, which I think you start out like going, you don't dive into a cold pool of water. You go in tiptoeing in until your toes get used to it and you go in deeper. But I think it's really important to go at the child's speed and to meet the child's need where they are. And I think for most children right after the death of someone, it's probably not the best time to read books about death directly, but it's waiting until they're ready for that facing the reality of death. And in grieving, children have the different things that they need at different points in time, across time. A year from the death, they might want to talk about how they can memorialize or what could they do to remember that person. And there's a there's a quote by Bruce Colville that says, talks about how each book is like an arrow that shoots into the heart. And the right book at the right time is what you need. Yeah, I think that's really important. So, Katie, what would you say to that? How how do we find that right book at the right time? I, this is such a complex issue. Yeah. So, so how would you go about it? Yeah, and I think it's definitely, you know, you have to do your research. And there are, you know, really good resources out there, though, that can help you, you know, such as our website. And then also librarians are great resources. You know, going to your local library and, you know, just sharing, you know, a little bit about, you know, maybe what your child's going through. You know, you don't have to divulge all the details, but they can probably show you, you know, 10 or 15 books that you can share with your child. And then you can look through those books and like you knowing your child the best would be able to, you know, bring those home and, you know, you can share, you know, a few of them with with your child and then, you know, discuss it with them as well. That's that's really great. I think there's just tons of resources out there. Like you said, librarians, I'm a little biased in that way, but I believe they're fabulous that way too. But Melissa, tell us a little bit maybe about an experience that you've had where you found that that a book has really addressed a very important need, either for you personally or maybe for a child that you've worked with. I think it's really important, first of all, when you're working with a child, and I'm thinking of one in particular, I've had a lot of issues with anxiety, and talking about just emotion in general. And there's the book, How Are You Peeling? Foods with Moods, which is great for a lot of kids. You start out with, it's very fun. You're not talking about anything that happened to anyone. You're looking at these pictures of these onions that have little beans in for eyes, and they've like carved a little mouth out. It's very, very fun. So I think starting out with something fun, just to talk about emotions in general, to give the child a way to express themselves, and then to follow their lead in what they actually want to do. For a while, you might need to do some fun activities before you even select a 
booked. And then as you get to know the child better, then you would then get a feel for what that child would like. And then you might have a variety of books and ask them, which book would you like to read, giving them an option and an opportunity to select one that some books that you've screened ahead of time to make sure they're okay. I also find sometimes that um, when in a classroom setting, if you need to let children understand about maybe a, a child in the classroom, I'm thinking of a specific incident, a child in the classroom, their parent died, they're out of school for a few days, a week or so, and then they come back helping prepare the children. The teacher could read a book just about how you talk about death with a person who's had that experience and how you might say things that would be appropriate. So you could read a book and talk about this is how they talked about it. This is how they said, I'm so sorry for your loss. And that reminds me of of, uh, when my husband died, for instance, these little girls uh, that I had taught him in a class uh, came up to me in the hallway and they they touched me on my arm and they said, we're so sorry for your loss. Well, we had talked about how to say things like that. So it was very, very wonderful to me, very heartwarming that they were very genuine in, in their expression and that they knew how to talk sensitively about something that was very touching. That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. I, I think that that's one of the biggest challenges, particularly with topics like this. They're often difficult and and hard to address. So as we close today, Katie, just tell us a little bit about how do you think adults can kind of get over some of those inhibitions that they might have about dealing with some of these really sensitive topics that, that are difficult to talk about, death and you know suicide and all of these things that are mm-hmm. hard enough for us to talk about as adults, let alone talk to a child. So how can we take that step? I think just understanding that your child is experiencing th- these things, whether you know you want them to or not, they're going to go through their life and they're going to they're going to lose loved ones and they're they might get bullied and you know have you know these sad feelings within them and understanding that and then understanding that as a parent you kind of have that responsibility to help. Uh, to help them manage those things and that these books are really great resources to do that in a, you know, a soft way where you're not, you know, just laying on them all this information, but it's a, a way in which you can have that process of really being able to help them and um, in a way in which they can understand at their level as well. And so I think that's why, you know, just understanding their feelings and understanding the reality of the situation and then being able to use these books as a great resource in order to help them manage those emotions. That's a perfect way to end. Thank you so much, ladies, for helping us understand how books can really help us address some important issues in our child's lives. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Melissa Heath and Katie Smith talking with Rachel about bibliotherapy, the use of books in emotional healing. We finish up the show today with children reading poetry. Gina Clark, a poet herself and a story lady at the Orem, Utah Public Library, gathers some of her children together to read poetry by Janet Wong. My name is Susanna Clark, and I'm going to be reading Anywhere by Janet Wong. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would you live? Know what I heard? I heard there's a place in the mountains somewhere where fun is free and people play fair. If you feel bad, your neighbors care. The air smells green, crisp, and clean. Water's fresh from the spring. You can pick berries to picnic on near waterfalls and streams. When school's out, I'm going there. Want to come? Come, there's plenty to share. My name is Mary Clark. I am 10 years old and I'm going to be reading Flying by Janet Wong. In their dreams, my friend can fly. 
they flap their arms and soar like hawks. I've never flown except in planes. I think I would be terrified to find the ground lost under me. I like to go to sleep at nine, curled up round in my safe bed, dreaming soft and fuzzy things, goose down dreams cradling my head. My name is Dorothy. I am eight, and I am reading a poem called "Dog Dreams" by Janet Wong. Our saddled dog kicks his feet, twitches, growls in his sleep, whimpers and snarls, yelps awake. I scratch behind his ears and take him out. To let him sniff the trees, let him walk and chase the breeze. Nose in air, eyes closed tight, chasing dreams into the night. My name is Caroline Clark. I'm 12, and I will be re- reading "Talking in Her Sleep" by Janet Wong. I'm lying awake in the top bunk, listening to my sister's snoring, boring a hole beneath my head. When I hear her say, "Tomato." <laughs> And she starts to laugh like something snapped in her brain. Big round eyes gaze over, pointing to my upside down head, then settling down into sleep once more, leaving me red faced like a tomato. That was the poetry of Janet Wong, read by the children of Utah poet Gina Clark. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.